Thank you, Randy, for leading for us while Pastor Laramie is away and working on his uh, dissertation. Thank you so much, uh, brother, for leading that way. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Psalms, and specifically Psalm 74. Psalm 74, as we reflect together from the Word of God on this psalm, Psalm 47. Psalm 47 is tucked right in the middle of Psalm 46 and 48, which are Psalms of Zion that speak of the prominent role of the city of Jerusalem and continue this theme of God's supreme sovereign reign over his creation. If you'll notice, Psalm 46 ends with verses 10 and 11, be still and know I am God. I will be exalted. Listen at this exaltation language. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then listen at Psalm 47, verse 2, for example, for the Lord, the Most High. Again, verse 9, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Then notice how Psalm 48 begins. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. These three hymns, these three psalms, focus our heart and attention to that which we were created. You and I were created for worship. And these hymns, these psalms, call us as believers to worship Christ to worship God as the all-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing King. From Psalm 47, we learn this eternal truth. God's exaltation, God's exaltation through the work of Christ, God's exaltation through the work of Christ calls all people to praise Him. God's exaltation through the work of Christ calls all people to praise him. This psalm indeed is a call to praise, a call to praise for the people of God to praise God for who he is, but then it concludes with a call to praise on behalf of peoples, even the nations, the pagan nations who don't even bow in submission to Christ as king. This text images God's ascension to the throne as he rules and he reigns. It begins with this call to worship here in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. You might remember from 2 Kings chapter 11 when Joash was enthroned as king, the Bible recounts that the peoples did exactly this. As they coronated a new king, the nation of Israel would shout and they would clap their hands and it was an image of great joy, a means of great joy of seeing a new king installed. And as we think about worship in the context of this psalm, this psalm reminds you and me that our worship is to be 
excited. Now, don't miss what I mean here by excited. I'm not meaning necessarily expressions of excitement that you and I understand in terms of maybe somebody thinks for me to be excited, I need to run around the sanctuary two or three times. No, I'm not speaking of that type of excitement. We can recommend a church or two down the street that might engage in something like that. We won't be doing that here. The psalmist is using these expressions of clapping of hands and of shouting to express the excitement of the coronation of this new king. Thus, the response to you and me when we enter into worship of God, our hearts, our being, our minds should be filled with great excitement for the joy of entering into this exaltation of this great and glorious king. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. This shouting toward God with loud songs of joy is an expression of subjugation. It's an acknowledgement on behalf of the subjects that is you and me, that we are indeed God's, Yahweh's subjects. This hymn reminds us that there is one direction to which your worship and my worship should be projected, and our worship should be projected toward this great and mighty God. When we join together for the worship of this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, every Sunday, it is an acknowledgement that He and He alone is sovereign, and you and I are not. Worship is an expression of gratitude toward God, but a right understanding of who God is and who we are. He and he alone is worthy of this type of affection. He and he alone is worthy of this type of direction of our heart's posture toward him. This psalm invites us to join and this loud expression of exaltation of the supremacy of God. And notice in verses two through four, the psalmist reminds us that it is specifically God's people who are called to worship God. Notice how the psalmist reflects upon the call for God's people to worship the Lord. For the Lord, Yahweh, you might remember as we started this second book of the Psalms, Pastor Laramie delivered that sermon and noted for us that in this second collection of books in the Psalms, the name that is most used in reference to God is Elohim. But here in this passage of Scripture, the psalmist uses three words actually, but primarily Elohim, but then twice Yahweh. For the Lord, Yahweh, That covenantal name by which the people of God, the nation of Israel, knew God. The Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. As the psalm invites you and me into this expression of worship, 
the psalmist notes for us that we are to expressly worship God based on his past acts toward his people. So as the nation of Israel gathered and reflected upon God and who God was and what God had done for them, the psalm invites us into this type of reflection of seeing God's acts on behalf of his people throughout history. And here, the psalmist calls us to reflect and worship toward God based off his past acts, and specifically, he reflects upon this, uh, uh, this conquest of the land as God so faithfully delivered them from Egypt and brought them into Canaan. And so notice how the psalmist reflects on this great king's expedition on behalf of his people. Verse three, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the rise of Jacob, whom he loves. The imagery here is exclusively that of God bringing his people into the land that he had promised them. Of course, it was a journey on behalf of the nation of Israel to actually obtain the land that God had promised for them. They went through a time of trouble and trials in accomplishing what God had promised them. But as the nation of Israel reflects upon this call to worship God, she is reminded exclusively that she should worship God because God is one who is faithful to keep his covenantal promises toward his people. God's expression of his faithfulness toward his people in the Old Testament is seen in this journey begins at the precipice of the Red Sea as the nation of Israel faced the Egyptians to her back and the Red Sea in her front and faced with certain death. They, you remember the story, thought it might be better to go back to Egypt. But what does God do? In a miraculous way, the Lord provides salvation for the nation of Israel. And this salvation led the nation of Israel out of bondage and Egypt and toward the fulfillment of this promise that they would indeed have their own land, that they would indeed be God's people in this land that God had promised. But the journey of subduing this land wasn't easy after they crossed the Red Sea. You might remember in Joshua, they're going to send in some spies to find out how in the world can they take this land. And what do the majority of the spies conclude? These people are really big over there. They're giants. If we go into this land, they're going to annihilate us. And there were two faithful spies that said, no, God has promised us this land. This is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. We absolutely can take this land and the nation of Israel. And this psalm is reflecting on God's incredible faithfulness to his people to do exactly that which he had promised to them. He, God, 
has subdued peoples, these foreign nations, under us, under our feet. Who is us and our? The people of God. The nation of Israel. He chose our heritage for us. What would be the primary example of the heritage that God had chosen for the nation of Israel? It would be this promise of land. As this psalm reflects, some of your Bibles translates this word, the pride of Jacob. I think we can also translate it the rise of Jacob, and I think this is a a reflection on the image of the land itself. If you've been to the nation of Israel, you are well aware of the topography of the land and the rising of the hills and the, va- and the mountains uh, here in the nation of Israel as you begin in the Negev Desert and make your way all the way up to the Galilee region. The nation of Israel is filled with the rising of these mountains. And this sign to the nation of Israel that they would inherit this land was a means of great praise and adoration for what God and God alone had accomplished for whom? His people. But this psalm is not only a call for the people of God themselves to worship God, it is also a call for all peoples to worship God. And we see that call for all peoples to worship God reflected in verses six through eight. But you might be wondering, you didn't read verse five. And you're right. Because verse five stands as the apex of this text of scripture. Read it with me. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. As we reflect on these twin themes of the call for the people of God to worship God and the call for all peoples to worship God, verse 5 reminds us that we, all people, the people of God and the pagans, worship God. For he and he alone is the one that has gone up with the shout. He and he alone is the one who has been coronated as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This imagery of the Lord with the sound of a trumpet is a reflection of the coronation of a new king, but also of two images that reign supreme in the minds of ancient Israel. That of the establishment of of Jerusalem as a city of God. We'll see that in just a few moments as we reflect on a text from 2 Samuel together, but also of the conquests of the land found in Joshua chapter six. As King David was ready to move the people of God in toward Jerusalem, to establish Jerusalem as the city of God, there was one piece of furniture, if you will, that needed to be located to the city of David. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And you'll remember that image well from 2 Samuel chapter 6 as they began to move 
this ark toward Jerusalem, and Uzziah and his brothers were tasked with helping David um, bring this ark of the covenant into the city of God. And what happens as they're moving the ark of the covenant into the city of God? It begins to falter for some reason. Perhaps the ox ran into a hole and they think they're gonna help God and so they lift their hands forward to provide the sense of stability to the Ark of the Covenant and what happens? The Lord kills them. But if you're to read the imagery from 2 Samuel chapter six, we're reminded of this uh, process of bringing the Ark toward Jerusalem and it was to be done as this text of scripture Uh, indicates with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet. This text, along with Psalm 46 and again of Psalm 48, remind us of the supremacy of, of Jerusalem as the city of God, the place from which God himself will rule and reign over his people, not only during this time, but in the time to come. Not only a reflection of the establishment of the city of David, as a prominent place from which Yahweh himself would reign, but also a reminder of what we just spoke of, the conquest from Joshua chapter six. You remember Joshua chapter six? The people of God had come to Jericho as they're moving forward in the conquest of the land, and well, Jericho kind of stands in their way. They're somewhat afraid of Jericho. They're afraid of the people that inhabit the the town of Jericho. Jericho has these big, great walls. And what does the Lord tell Joshua they should do? I have a great plan for the next six days. I want your boys to march around this wall one time and blow a trumpet and shout. That seems very reasonable, God. We'll try it. And oh, by the way, on the seventh day, we want you to march around these city walls seven times and shout, and do what? Blow the trumpet. And what does God do for the people of God in the conquest of the land on the seventh time, on the seventh day, through shouting and the blowing of a horn? This great God, the one who is most high, the one who is to be feared, does for the people what the people cannot do for themselves. He and he alone provides security, redemption, and victory. So the psalmist is reminding you and me that the ultimate focus of our worship is always directed toward God. This is, friends, what God's people have been created for. We have been created to worship God. So it asks the question of your heart and my heart. Who are you worshiping? To whom have you pledged your allegiance? 
What is that thing that reigns most supreme in your heart and in your mind? That thing that you direct your attention and your affection toward? That which you orient your life around? This psalm is reminding you and me that the right orientation of our heart is directed toward God. A call for the people of God to worship now. Notice here in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, a call for all peoples to worship God. Notice imperatives that begin here in verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For what reason? Verse 7, 8, and 9. For God, Elohim, is the king of all the earth. Sing praises skillfully. Sing praises with a psalm. Sing praises that are well thought out, that are well intentioned. Verse 8, for God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to, the God, belong to God. He is highly exalted. It should be no surprise that the nation of Israel would indeed desire that all peoples would praise God. This is the testimony, for example, of the prophets. This is the testimony of what God had spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and communicated again to, to Abram in Genesis chapter 15 and again in Genesis chapter 17, that he would be the father of how many nations? Many nations. This is the testimony of the book of Jonah. Jonah represents the heart and the mindset of the nation of Israel. They don't desire that all peoples might worship this great God and King. Jonah reflects the heart of the nation of Israel and not wanting to go take this message of God to these foreign nations. And yet, what was God's desire? That his people, the nation of Israel, might take this message of his supremacy and declare it to all the nations. This is the testimony, if you will, of the prophet Amos, as he declared in Amos chapter nine, if you wanna look with me real quickly there to Amos chapter nine, in verses 11 through 12. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and build it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. You might remember in our time through the book of Amos, Edom represents, it's, a, it's the, the foreign nation that is mentioned the most in the book of Amos and in some ways becomes to uh, represent the entirety of all the foreign nations. And this is what Amos is saying here. There is a day that is coming that they may possess the remnant of, of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. All the nations will be owned by this great God and King. They will indeed experience the presence of Yahweh. 
This is the call, for example, of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2. As he imaged for you and me this mountain to which all the rivers would flow, an indication of that day in which all people will bow in submission to this great God for what he has ultimately accomplished on behalf of all peoples. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The prince of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The exaltation of God is preeminently expressed in the exaltation of his son Jesus. And that exaltation of Jesus is imaged in a number of ways for you and me in the context of the New Testament. The exaltation of Christ is imaged for us in his exaltation on the cross. As John would tell us, recounting the words of Jesus, when I am high and lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. The exaltation of Jesus is seen in the fact that Jesus Christ himself has made an atonement so that by faith and trust and hope in Jesus, we might join in this eternal exaltation of Jesus as the sovereign, ruling, reigning king of the universe. But the New Testament only depicts the exaltation of Christ for you and me through his death. The New Testament also depicts Jesus' exaltation in his ascension. Notice the ascension language of this text. He is, verse 2, the most high. Verse 5, God has gone what? Up. Verse 9, God reigns over, an indication of his superiority. He sits on this high and holy throne. Verse 9, he is highly exalted. Jesus' exaltation is seen in his ascension communicated for you and me in the book of Acts, in the very beginning section of Acts. Well, I forget the ordering of the books of the Bible here. Acts, then Romans. Acts chapter 1. Listen at this ascension language of Christ. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood before them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same, in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' ascension 
is a statement of divine power and authority as Jesus returned to the right hand of God the Father from which we read this morning from Philippians chapter two where he is ruling and reigning and the ultimate culmination of Jesus' exaltation on the cross and his ascension back into heaven and his coming again one day. is communicated in that beautiful hymn-like language of Philippians chapter two. That every knee should bow and every tongue in heaven and on earth shall declare, Jesus is Lord. But friends, as we wait for that last triumphant expression of God's exaltation, through the return of Christ, this hymn reminds you and me that as the people of God, we have a lot of work ahead. This psalm calls all people to praise God. How is the call for all people, the pagan nations, the unbelievers, your neighbors, my neighbors, your coworkers, not my coworkers. Your friends, my friends, your family, my family. How are they to hear this message of God's expectation that they join with the people of God in bowing and submission to this great God and King, Jesus? reminded us of that right before he ascended. In the closing chapters of Matthew chapter 28 or Luke chapter 24 and what you and I affectionately know as the Great Commission, Jesus has given to you and me this call and giving to all people that they join us in this worship of the triune God. For he says to us, go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we bear an incredible responsibility in issuing this call for all people to join us in this worship of our triune God by declaring the beauty of the glory of God to those who do not believe. So as we think about worship... One of the highest expressions of worship is our willingness to faithfully obey Christ in declaring his goodness to those who do not believe. As we have the joy of gathering with the people of God this morning and singing this hymn, this psalm, and other psalms that reflect the greatness of God. This psalm reminds us that there are people all around us 
who have not joined us in this worship. And we bear a responsibility in declaring this God who is high and lifted up to all peoples, to every nation, to every neighbor, to every child, to every coworker, to every friend. As we hear this call for worship, does this call of worship compel you to worship God in declaring his greatness to those who do not believe? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your exaltation through the work of Christ that calls all people to praise you. And as we reflect on this psalm this morning and being reminded of what you have done for us in the past and what you are calling for us to do in the present. We're humbled, Lord. In your sovereignty. You have called us. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've adopted us. And as your people, Lord, you've given us a task. A task of joining you in this declaration for all peoples to praise you. So we ask that as your people, Lord, that in our hearts we might live our lives in a continued posture of worship before you. That it would be the true delight and joy of our lives to give ourselves a continued worship of you. That we would delight in the gathering of the people of God on a weekly basis. That we would give ourselves to that, that we would prioritize that in our hearts and our lives. And as an outflow of our worship for you, we might join you, God, and desiring those around us to join us. To join us in worship because you and you alone are worthy. Because you and you alone have acted on behalf of your people and accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Salvation. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on the preaching of God's word? In what ways do you find yourself daily, weekly, 
worshiping God. Can you see evidences of this as a passion in your life? Spend a moment and just simply reflect on your life this past week. How was your life this past week an indication of worship toward a holy, good God? Maybe you're here, friend, and this text rings somewhat hollow in your ears. There is no excitement for worship. There is no joy in worship. Might it be because you've never surrendered your life to Christ? Would you trust in Christ this morning? Would you believe in him today? In just a few moments, we're gonna stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. Maybe you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Friend, we'd encourage you to just turn to someone that's seated next to you. There are plenty of Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people in the life of this church that would be delighted to speak with you and share with you how you can trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be available to have conversations with you even after our service today. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you that indeed your life might be a demonstration of worship toward God and you desire that. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you the truths of this psalm might indeed resonate in your heart and in your life, that you would be one who desires to worship with the people of God and desires to see those who do not believe join you in this worship of God by confessing Jesus as Lord. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.